0: Briefly, last week what we talked about was uh, how much every person alive needs a last word. Uh, how do we decide what's the last word in our lives? In other words, uh, how we answer the big questions in our lives of right and wrong and morality and, and uh, the, 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 the most challenging parts of our lives the narrative that most of us hear is that every person decides for themselves. And we saw last week just how bankrupt that is and all the problems that that causes. Uh, and what we saw is, from a Christian perspective, and I think it's, it's probably the perspective that, that uh, would make the most difference in the world if people embraced it, Jesus said, unambiguously, he was the last word. All of Scripture points to him. And then, on top of that, he said... Not only is he the last word, but because the scripture is all about him, it is the last word too. So we saw this relationship between Jesus and scripture that they dovetail together in this way. And so some people say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the Bible. But Jesus said, if you you love me and you respect me, then you're going to really take my word seriously, as seriously as you take me. So we looked at that last week, and, and we're going to talk about that. How how do we take the Bible seriously without becoming uh, a fundamentalist nut job? Now that's a technical term for some of you. In, in church, we use that, uh, and it's not uncharitable to say nut job. Actually, uh, Jesus Himself used lots of terms that were very direct and pointed. And were colloquialisms of his day that, that exposed uh, foolish thinking and behavior to, to make a point. Uh, it's been a it's it's been a part of history. Now in America today, we don't like to use terms like that. And I don't I don't use them uh, carelessly, but fundamentalism is is this toxic. Influence in, in every society, religious fundamentalism. And a few years back, we did a whole series on the issue of religion and, and how religion is just antithetical to what the gospel is about. And when people ask me, what is what is fundamentalism? Uh, I'll give you a couple of characteristics. If you want, a, if you want a, a real dose of fundamentalism, of Jesus, on the topic of fundamentalism, go to Matthew chapter 23 and the whole chapter is Jesus just challenging the fundamentalism of his day. And it's, as you read it, you think, wow, I, I've, I see that around me. I see that in some people who are church-going people. I see some of this in people who are religious from you know, other tr- uh, non-Christian traditions. But here's, here's just a couple of characteristics. Just touch on these because I want to move on. Uh, Fundamentalists often take the Bible as a book of rules. And to just look at the Bible as a book of rules is to fundamentally misunderstand it. It is at its heart a story. It's a story that's full of stories. And the stories have a narrative, a narrative thread that goes all the way through it. It's about God and his activity in history among people, to reveal himself to them and his love for them and and his, and his plan to try to put everything back together that's really messed up. It's not. And, fundamentally, it's not a book about rules. It's a book about Jesus. That's what Jesus said, you know, we looked at last week and the story. Fundamentalists often don't apply scriptures to themselves first. And Jesus talked about how... Uh, The religious leaders and and the fundamentalists of his day say to people, you need to get your act together. But he said, the problem is, is they don't apply that to themselves when I say act together in some specific way. They're, They're calling people out, but they're not letting the truth call them out first. And what the truth does when you let it call you out first before you take other people on is it humbles you. It softens you. It makes you sensitive in very important ways. Remember in Matthew 7, if you remember the the, the famous passage about don't judge people? In that passage, Jesus says, if you see something in your brother's eye, a little piece of sawdust, a splinter, make sure before you start taking a spoon and trying to dig that out. I add that to the passage, by the way that you go and look in the mirror and make sure that you don't have a a larger log in your own eye. If you do, deal with that first. Then you'll be able to see clearly enough to help the person get the splinter out of their eye. It doesn't mean the person might not have a problem. What Jesus is saying is that our reflex and our instinct should be, God, what do you want to do in my life? with respect to this truth before I go out and use it on other people. That's always supposed to be the way we approach scripture. But that's not how fundamentalists approach it. They read something and go, I'm going to go fix somebody with this. And they, they pull out their gospel guns and start firing away at everybody. And they don't do it with any sense of humility at all. And so people don't tend to respond very well to them. And they might be well-intentioned, but their their approach is really uh, destructive. Third, fundamentalists often deliver the law without being willing to help the person that that they're talking to who's struggling. And one of the apostles said, that if someone's caught in sin, if you're a spiritual person, what you should do is first, you should beware, because you could be tempted, and deal with them gently, help them deal with this issue that's been identified gently and, and, and look to yourselves and be careful and bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Well, a fundamentalist just wants to drop the bomb on you. It's kind of like dropping the microphone. You're in sin. Boom. Walk away. But that's not what Jesus did. The incarnation is Jesus comes to us and says, there's something wrong and I'm coming alongside you to help you sort it out. And I'm here as long as it takes. But see, if 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 all of us had, the, when I say that one right there, uh, I think a lot of us can recognize we all have a little bit of fundamentalist in, of it. Look, we all have a little bit of fundamentalist in us, don't we? We do. We just love to point out where other people are wrong, and then we just leave them to their own devices to figure it out. The truth is, they probably would have wouldn't be in the mess they're in if they knew how to figure it out. And if God gives us, hopefully, the grace to see where something's wrong, we should say, God, give me grace to help that person work that through. But that's the, that's the, the toxic nature of fundamentalism, is it just wounds people without healing. And Jesus said over and over, explicitly and, and by implication and by his example, that the truth, when it comes, should bring healing, too. So... How do you take Scripture seriously? I mean, make it your last word without really becoming a fundamentalist who just judges people. Which, by the way, uh, taking it seriously means you, you have, the Scripture has convictions. It, it, it draws lines. It draws moral lines in the sand and says, this is right and this is wrong. It isn't wrong to have convictions. It isn't wrong to make moral distinctions. And it isn't wrong to have passion for the truth. So we don't all have to be like really mellow people walking around because that's how Jesus was. No, that's not not the Christ of Scripture. He's not like that. He was gentle, but he can also be incredibly firm and bold and challenging because, you know, the, the idea that Jesus was this cool little peasant philosopher who was just, you know, sharing proverbs of wisdom, uh, little you know, theological bone mots to to the peasants, you don't usually get killed for doing that, right? That's not a picture that, that seems all that threatening. But everybody was antagonized by Jesus because he brought the truth. He brought it. So how can we grasp the truth and, and take it seriously without becoming, though, fundamentalistic in, in uh, the wrong way? Well, You can, you should write this down on your, on someplace prominent in your house so you remember it. If you read scripture right, it will always take you back to Jesus. If you read scripture properly, in other words, if you take it seriously, it will always, it'll take you through the truth, but it'll always take you back to Jesus. It won't just dead end into a bunch of rules and a bunch of you shoulds, it will take you through that territory, but it will take you to Jesus because you can't do that stuff without him. You can't do it without his grace. And see, what scripture isn't trying to do is make us a bunch of moralists. It, it does make us moral people, but we don't become moralists. And the Bible is not supposed to be something that's just taught as a, a series of things that you should be doing a certain way. It includes that, but it's more than that. The Bible is God's way of getting us into a relationship with him and and, and transforming our lives as a result. But moralistic teaching does make us feel good. And some of that is is needed and necessary. It's sort of like, no, I'm not going to go there. I didn't plan to say that. That's going to take me down I'm, I know my wife is going to say something to me afterwards because I was about to give you an illustration that I find interesting, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of you wouldn't. So I'm going to not go there. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't. You need, you need three things to be able to read the Bible in a way that, t- that always points you to Jesus. First, you need the help of the Holy Spirit. You need the help of the Holy Spirit. And you can write that in that little blank on your outline. Uh, The scriptures, like 2 Timothy 3, here's what Timothy said. Let me find it. He says, Paul writes, and he says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, to be God-breathed, it's this Greek word that that gives the idea, like when someone speaks... Words come out of their mouth and breath comes with it. And it's, it's the idea of spirit and breath merged together that bring life. Because breath is life. All through the Bible, God's spirit, the word in Hebrew and the word in Greek mean breath, means life. And so when God speaks, he speaks life. If we hear his word, it will give us life. But we need the Holy Spirit to experience that impact. We need him actively. It's not just a matter that we'll see in a minute. Our intellect needs to be engaged in the process of reading the Bible right. But this is, this is more than just the words of people. The, the theologians have, have given us a simple, concise definition of what the Bible is. The Bible is the words of God and the words of people in history. The word of God in the words of people in history. And because it's the word of God, in the words of people in history, and we're culturally and time wise far separated from them, because the last book of the New Testament was written, was written around ninety AD, which if you're bad at math, that's about nineteen hundred years ago plus in counting in a culture that's completely different than ours, in a language, who spoke a language, and, and, the, and the original documents were in a language different than what we're reading today. All those distances create a challenge that you can't resolve by yourself, A. But B, even with the best study aids, etc., and the best thinking, this book is a God-breathed book. And, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, The natural man, which is the person without the spirit, can't receive the wisdom from God because they're natural. And so first, if we're not born again, we're not going to get help from God. Now, I'm going to show you an example in a minute where a person who wasn't born again did get help from God, but but there's, there's um, there's, there's, there's part of the way that God speaks. He speaks to everybody. But Jesus said... All the prophets said, like in uh, Isaiah 66 two. Isaiah said, to, to whom God's speaking through Isaiah, to whom do I listen and to whom do I regard? But him who trembles at my word. And it doesn't mean a person who's afraid of God's word It means a person who respects God's word, who has this heart attitude that God, I want you to speak to me and what you say will go. You get the last word. You're the boss. I'm going to trust you even if I don't like it. God says to that person, I will speak and I will respond to them and I will listen to them. It doesn't mean He doesn't listen to anybody else. It just means God speaks far less to people who only want it their way. He will keep speaking to us hopefully that that we can come to our senses and realize that we don't get anywhere when we play God. And so, We need the Spirit, but we can only understand the Spirit if we're born again. And we won't receive the Spirit's work unless we're humble and willing to obey. In fact, Jesus, when when he was in a sort of a debate with some of the religious leaders of his day, they were saying, who gave you the authority to say this? You know, uh, how can you, an uneducated man, expect to tutor and teach us? How do we know you're from God? And he said this. Now, think about it. the boldness in this, and the, and the confidence that he was speaking from God that he had when he said this, he says, "If you want to know, this is in John seven seventeen. Not paraphrasing. If you want to know whether the teaching I'm giving you is from God or not, you'll know it if you're willing to obey it." And he was telling them they need to obey him at that point. If you're willing to do God's will, you will listen to me. That's pretty. That's pretty bold talk. And he's saying. There's no, we're not quibbling here. You're either going to obey me or, or not. And it, if you want to be sure that I'm from God, you'll know for sure because God will be with you if you're willing to do his will, even if you don't like it, even if you finally discover that I'm from God. So, secondly, we need to use our reason. And because the Bible is the word of God and the words of people in history, That cultural distance makes it hard to understand it and interpret it. Now, there's a lot we could say about interpretation here, but it it is common among some of our tribe, uh, you know, Pentecostal, third-wave Christians who believe in the work of the Holy Spirit, that we don't need reason. And that's, that's just not true. But we need reason that is under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our mind is a wonderful gift. To have a relationship with God, you don't toss it overboard. It's it's submitted to God. It's supposed to be a a, a faculty through which God blesses us. And I think we have to just accept that that's the way it works. And interpreting the Bible requires some common-sense rules of interpretation. Just like when you read... Any genre of literature, you know that you approach poetry one way. You know you approach a technical manual another way. You know you approach historical narrative this way. A person's a love letter, a thank you card. You interpret all those differently. We all take those for granted. But the Bible is 66 books of every, almost every genre of literature is found in Scripture. And so we have to do a little homework to learn to understand it and interpret it and apply it uh, wisely. And one of the first rules you learn if you're going to interpret the Bible uh, properly is what were the authors trying to get to? What's the common sense sort of reading of this? Don't read everything with a metaphor in mind or allegory or some you know, exotic interpretation. Look at it in a real straightforward way. That doesn't mean literalistically, Okay. It just means that we, we let it speak to us in a common sense way. Uh, last about, if we're going to use our reason, we have to learn to read and meditate on the Bible faithfully. Let me read another passage in 2 Timothy. Paul said this. This is a little bit of a promise. Paul said uh, he gave Timothy some instructions and, and at the end of this long string of sort of sayings that seemed to me uh, a little disconnected when I first read him. He said, Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. And that word, that Greek word reflect, meant to take time and to kind of turn it around in your mind and look at it from different angles and try to use some of your experience and how you've been taught. What is this saying? Don't just look at it very simplistically. Look at it thoughtfully. And reflecting sometimes is not what we want to do, but that's the hard work that we need to do. Because when the Spirit speaks to us through the Word, Paul said to Timothy, we're going to have to do a little hard work to cooperate with the Spirit. But I think a lot of us tend to think that that the Bible is just going to drop these little nuggets of truth in us we just read it and these profoundly deep insights just pop into our head you know i just read the bible through i don't even know what this means the truth is going to dawn on me without any effort on my part it just doesn't work that way it doesn't doesn't work that way in any other area of life and so the spirit being active doesn't mean you're not supposed to put some effort into it third we need to learn in a community being Americans, we are very individualistic and we just think if I read some portion of scripture and I think it says this, it must say this. Right? Because I'm an American. And what I what I say goes. Because if I don't like it, I'll find some other place in Scripture where I can find the same thing. It says it, and that's what I want it to say. But that's not the way that we're supposed to approach Scripture. Because this is this is supposed to be read in a community. It's supposed to be read where where groups of us are thinking about this together and saying, "What does this mean? How does this apply, not just to me, but to us? And how has the church throughout history looked at this? Because I came to Christ pretty much from a you know a, not a religious background, even though my parents uh, went to church on holidays and. Uh, you know, there was some passing exposure to, to, to God and the Bible and, and Christianity and the Episcopal Church. But, uh, and I don't know how faithfully that that church, uh, St. Christopher's, in, uh, on Blaylock Road in Houston, Texas, I think it was Blaylock Road, how faithfully they proclaimed the gospel there. But however faithfully it was, I didn't get it. And I wasn't really interested in getting it, and that was probably the problem. I didn't even know what it was all about. It didn't make any sense to me. It didn't, have, it didn't seem to make sense to my parents and, and be involved in their lives, and I wasn't sure why they always went. Uh, you know, they had some loyalty to the whole thing, but it didn't really make sense to me. But the church throughout history has had this, has views on things that I need to listen to. I need to let have influence in my life. The idea of tradition. To most Americans is, no way. Tradition is a bad thing. We're trying to get rid of tradition. Tradition is dead. It's empty. Because essentially, when we say that, we're saying, we're going to reinvent the wheel every generation. We're going to reinvent the wheel every year. Because we're just chasing after whatever is novel, whatever is interesting. Because the the same old stuff that I've heard before, I'm bored with that. I need something fresh. The weird thing is, is when we get to that place, it's usually because we become disconnected from... Jesus, and one of the things that Jesus taught and that the apostles got a hold of and they passed it down was that people who've gone before us have something of the grace of God that we have to respect and receive and that we cannot profit and experience the fullness of life that Jesus has for us without that, and when I came to Christ in 1973, I kind of thought the Jesus movement was when Christianity started in, in the world. Right, All these young people and all the way that we did church, this must be you know, the best. It's like the, the high point of the church throughout history. It wasn't. It was a wonderful time. But God had done that many, many times. He's constantly coming and renewing and refreshing the church and renewing it. But he isn't changing the heart of what we believe, the faith that, that we pass on to one another. And so one of the struggles you're going to have as you labor to hear from the Spirit and do the hard work is you're going to come up with little ideas about interpretations of Scripture that, that uh, to use a technical word, are idiosyncratic. <laughs> Meaning, nobody else has pretty much believed it throughout history except you. And if you're the only one that believes it, or you're one of a small group of people, however sincere and, and you know, well-intentioned you are, you're probably wrong. Because a lot of godly, smart people have wrestled with this book for, for 2,000 years with the New Testament portion. And 4,000 years before that, 33,000 something years in the Old Testament portion. And there are, many of them are far better people than, than you or I are. And they're far more intelligent. And they're far more loving and wise and humble. And they've wrestled with this. And they came up with an amazingly consistent take on it. And at times, you know, there have been reformations and, and changes, but the heart of it has been really stable. And so when you hear people come along and, and, and give you a really, really radically new idea that, that nobody's ever found before, I can guarantee you it's wrong. I can guarantee you it's wrong. And, and it's, that's the, the height of hubris and pride that, that we as Americans in particular fall into. But we're not the only ones because this stuff is going on forever. So, how do we there's a story of which I was going to read the whole thing to you. I'll just I'll just summarize it for you. There's a story in the book of Acts where as the gospel is advancing from the center of Jerusalem in sort of concentric circles further and further out away from Jerusalem where where Jesus launched the whole movement of the gospel, there's a man named Philip who's one of the early leaders in the church and he's going now at and, and Samaria, and he's starting to go sort of into new territory. And as he does that, God speaks to him one day, I want you to go down by this desert road out in the middle of nowhere. And he's got this wild revival going on in the city, and he just goes, okay, that's what the Spirit wants. He starts trucking out in the middle of nowhere, and as he's doing that, it's a, it's a road, it's, it's a, 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 a thoroughfare, of, of travel. It's one of the, the, the trade routes. And there is a, a, an official of the, of the king of Ethiopia and his whole entourage and probably lots of soldiers who are traveling down that road. And he sees it. And God says, first, an angel was the one that told him to go there. Then, when he gets up and he sees the, the, the caravan and he sees the chariot, the Holy Spirit says, Go up and get alongside that chariot, which you know, is a dangerous thing. Right? It's like if President Obama was coming into town and you ran towards his limousine, you weren't going to get his autograph. I can promise you. These guys would take any sort of foreign person coming up alongside him as a threat. But God's in this. And so somehow he gets close enough and, and the, this Ethiopian official is reading a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, which which shows you he was probably a wealthy person because you, you just didn't. They just didn't. You, they didn't. Bible bookstores where you go down and find scrolls. They were handwritten. They were very expensive, very rare. He's got his own scroll. This guy's serious about trying to understand who God is and how to relate to him. And and he's not a Jew. He's a non-Jew, so he's a Gentile. And they called these God-fearers. But he's reading it, and as you know. <laughs> I don't know how fast old Philip's running or jogging, but he hears him reading that, and he says, hey, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand it? And he goes, no, I don't. How, can you help me? Come on up here. And so he gets up in the chariot, and he, sure enough, it says, here's, here's the passage he's reading. He's reading a passage from the book of the prophet Isaiah, and it says the eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter." And as a lamb, before the shearer is silent, he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? So do you see the struggle he has? Even though he is 2,000 years before us, Isaiah was speaking 700 years before him in a Jewish culture, and he didn't understand it. And he was serious about getting it. But the Spirit wanted to help this man. And here's the community coming alongside. You see those three elements there? And you can go through Scripture and see these over and over and over and over. When people are serious about, even people who don't know Jesus, are serious about trying to have a real relationship with God, God will make a way for them to understand what they need to understand. I could tell you stories. I'm reading a book right now about the advance of the gospel in Muslim countries in Africa, in the Middle East, and in Asia. And it's like reading the book of Acts on steroids. How God is speaking to Muslims, and which some of you might not know this, but but faithful Muslims every day pray. The first prayer they pray is, God, show us your way. Show us the truth. They pray that every day. And God's hearing their prayers. And He's sending His word to them. And then people being raised from the dead, sheikhs, Imams, terrorist cell leaders, bomb makers, the most violent people that, that, who are as far from God as you can imagine people would be. Jesus is appearing to them. They're they're having dreams, angels. God is after them. And you know. We all may be afraid of them, but God is is seeking them and pursuing them, and it's amazing what's happening in the Muslim world. Well, this you can see these the way that the, these three elements uh, are woven together in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, and in all these illustrations, I'm not going to tell you any. So, the scripture just has life giving benefits. We. One of them, we saw there the Ethiopian eunuch, and Paul says it in Second Timothy, he said that the Scripture is able to give us the wisdom so that we can have a relationship with God. Because the heart of Scripture is, is, is God trying to bridge this, this huge chasm between us so that we can have a relationship with Him, so we can know Him, and so who He is can... Fill our lives and change us and and fulfill hopes that we have that will never be fulfilled outside of it. Like Isaiah said uh, in Isaiah 55, here's one of the things, another promise. Uh, Let's read one more and then we'll close. You can see the other ones there in the notes. Isaiah 55, he says, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And here's the, here's the money verse. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. And he goes on to, to, to just, just give a, a series of promises. And a lot of us, Unfortunately, we look at this at the scriptures and we just see them as this obligation. I've got to read it, I have to have a quiet time. Man, what else does God want me to do? I, you know, shoot, I, you know, I, I got to see, Bra- I got to watch the whole Bravo channel tonight. I don't have time for this. And we just look at it in such a negative light, right? We do. And if we're reading this right, it will point us to Jesus. And if we press into Jesus, our lives will change. But, you know, if, if, if you believe, many of you are sitting here right now, and, and you believe that the Bible is the word of God, but you're not, you're not letting it speak to you privately, and, and you're often not hearing it taught publicly. And so do you really believe it? And if you, and I believe that you do believe it, but I believe what you don't recognize is that the enemy of your souls has convinced you that there's so many more things that are better for you that you should spend your time on than that book. And you're being robbed. You're being robbed. And then as you disconnect from the vine and you start to wither and you start feverishly trying to fix the things in your life that are just out of control, you should stop and go, I need to abide in the vine. And the promises of Scripture say, if you come and listen to my voice, I will make you alive. The the, the fruit of your life will change. But there's this, you understand, There's, there's this part of us that has to say, I need to take this word as the last word and take it seriously. I need to... To invest in it privately, regularly. It's like food. And uh, if, if we all look around the room, a lot of us are not missing meals very frequently. But we're missing spiritual meals almost every day. And so it's up to you. You can profit from Scripture. You can begin to invest in it over time. It will, you will. Sometimes immediately, if you've been neglecting it, and you begin to invest in it again, you get immediate benefits. Others of you, it's going to take a little time. And be faithful with it. Don't give up on it. Now, last thing. And we're gonna, I'm going to send you home. Because the application is real simple. Get in the Word. Get in the Word every day. Hear the Word taught regularly. In the rhythm of your life, you should be feeding on the Word as much as you're feeding on food. As much as you're feeding on entertainment. As much as, It should be a, a priority in your life. If you can't look at... Your schedule of your week and see the word on it it 's not important to you anything that 's important in your life will show up on your schedule this is the mo- this is as important a thing as you have All those good things that are in your life i don 't want you to, to crowd those things out. I just want you to realize those good things are going to go better if you 're feeding on the word every day R- and, and maybe you need to learn how to do that. People here can help you do it if you if you need some uh, mentoring in that because everybody does. Uh, last of all, I just want to invite you to pray. You may be sitting here and thinking, you know, I've read the Bible a lot, and I've never gotten as much out of it, John, as you say is in it. You know, you 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 say that God speaks to us, you know, through His Word, and you tell stories of people, and you know, Jeremy got up here and he talked about how God spoke to him, but God doesn't speak to me that way. Let me to point earlier that. You might be in one of two places in your life, if that's true. One is, you're a believer in Jesus, but you're just not willing to let God speak to you. It, maybe you have a little bit of a controversy with God about some particular matter in your life. And you know what God wants, but you're, you're stubborn. You're resisting Him about it. You're going to find the, the voice of God far more rare, if, if that's the case. Secondly, you may be here and you've just never really been born again. You never, you never surrendered your life to Christ and said, Jesus, come into my life. And what I want to do is I, I want to pray a simple prayer, and I'd like everybody here to pray it. And if, if you're here and you've never asked Jesus into your life, just pray this prayer with me. There's no magic in the words, but it, I think it. what it says is it summarizes what it means to want to come into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. And that it, it's the kind of prayer that, that people pray every day of the week, every month, every week of the month, every month of the year, every year for 2,000 years, and they've come into faith in Jesus, and they've been born again. And, and all of a sudden then the Bible opens up. Because I can tell you personally, people told me about the Bible, and there was something compelling about it. I just never read it myself. But I remember, after praying to receive Christ on a Friday night in September 1973, my freshman year in college, I remember starting to read the Bible immediately, and it just, like, it was so interesting. It was just so, it just like, wow, I just read it and read it and read it. I couldn't believe. It. I haven't read this book before. My parents taught me to love books. I'm always, I've always been a reader of all kinds of literature. I just thought, what? Nobody told me what a cool book this was, and it spoke to me. It would like I would read a story, and it was like, wow, this is written for me. And it was almost like I could just open the Bible. I figured out later. I could just go like this. Wherever I'd start reading, I was so hungry at that point. It would speak to me. Well, I want to invite you. if, If you're in that place where you go, I want that kind of relationship with God. He wants you to have it. He wants you to have it. So why don't you stand with me? And everybody here, just just. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Just close your eyes. I'm going to say the prayer, just phrase by phrase. You pray it with me. And, and if you've prayed this prayer because you want to ask Christ into your life, before you leave, Steve, who uh, he's one of the guys that gives announcements here, he'll be at the, at the coffee bar. And go and tell him, just tell him that you gave your life to Jesus, and he, he'll give you something. Uh, be surprised. But you need to tell somebody immediately if you've asked Christ in your life. So just close your eyes and let's let's pray. Now Pray out loud with me. I'm going to say the phrase. I'm going to pause. Then you say it after me. God, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you've pursued me because you want a relationship with me. I admit I've been living my life on my own terms. And this has hurt you and others deeply. I now believe Jesus died for my sins so I could be forgiven and I could have a relationship with you and start a whole new life. Today, I surrender my life to you and receive you as my Lord. Come into my heart. Lord Jesus, thank you. Amen. Father, we just thank you for uh, your, your great heart of love. And thank you for giving us your word that, that tells us who you are and how to know you and how you want us to live and how you want to be involved in our lives. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just take whatever words of what I've said today that uh, are helpful and that you would help people hold on to them and, and, and think about them and apply them more, more importantly. And just show them the blessing that, that you give to those who are obedient. Even if they struggle with the application and, and really getting it down perfectly. God, thank you that that you you bless our humble efforts to respond to your your wonderful good word. And I pray that blessing over everyone that's here, over their families and their homes and everything that they have, their health, their finances, their work, everything. Father, thank you for the blessing that that you give us to to pass on to others. And may that blessing just be evident this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.